People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and today we have the great thrill and the great pleasure to have one of South Africa's true legends in the studio to discuss his new book. Peter Dirk Ace is going to be talking to us about his new book, The Echo of a Noise, a memoir of then and now. Welcome into the studio, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. I always ask the first question, the same first question to all my interviewees. Please introduce yourself to our audience in your own words and on your own terms. Okay. Um, I am... Uh, okay. You know, it's very difficult to introduce myself because I think to myself, what am I? I tell you what, I'm an entertainer, which means that I write and I direct and I perform and I produce and I... And I do virtually everything that a stage manager has to do to present a performance. And then I do the performance and the entertainment is the issue. Um, I am a comedian and they call me a satirist. And um, I am thrilled to tell you that I am a Jewish Afrikaner. I belong to both chosen people. So this is a perfect uh, platform for you to talk about both of those uh, heritages on our station. And mentioning this is the perfect platform, Peter Dirk Ace is today, I would say, a platform, a brand and a platform. You produce cultural offerings in so many different forms of media. Mm. Your name is in immediately recognized by South Africans and by the South African diaspora all around the world. You, you are a platform and you put messages about South Africa looking at ourselves very critically in a mirror across to the people of South Africa. On that point, I wanted to start off first with language, mm. the power of language, the power of words, the spoken, the written, the tweeted, the power of words and language. Enormous power, especially if you use the wrong word. And I think it's terribly important to be very careful to make sure that if you press send and something goes and leaves you forever, they are the right words, because we can see what chaos has happened through the Twitter. I keep on saying to Helen Zilla, please, darling, don't tweet after two glasses of Chardonnay. Words are extraordinary. I mean, obviously, my, my, uh, the, the clay of my, um, of my structure is words in the theater. My entertainment is based on words. My humor is based on words. And I think the word humor is very important here because I find a big difference between comedy and, and humor. Comedy is the joke. Uh, humor is very personal. I think everybody has a very specific sense of humor, like a fingerprint. And humor doesn't mean something is funny. Humor means you are confronted by your fear and you recognize it for what it is and you go, ha ha, I'm going to win. And that's what I've been doing for most of my life is focusing on fear through humor. Um, and really, truly, that's what I do. I am, I've been unemployed since 1975, so I'm responsible for what I do. If I do nothing, nothing will happen. If I do something, anything can happen. Um, I like things to be hard and difficult. I'm scared of easy. Uh, and I have to reinvent myself all the time. I mean, I've been doing what I'm doing for over 40 years. There was a huge invention uh, uh, not even reinvention, but new invention uh, after 1994, when suddenly my targets were not there. And I thought, that's it, that's fine, I must get a proper job. 
But then I suddenly realized that politicians found me eventually. Uh, and uh, first of all, it was focusing on democracy, which is a very important issue and very misunderstood. Then it was the HIV-AIDS horror story that our government walked away from. Uh, and now, of course, there are so many issues in our new minefield of hashtags and hate speech that need to be referred to with humor, and it's getting pretty difficult, and that's good. In your book, The Echo of a Noise, you start off by saying, I built sandcastles when the tide is out. It's a beautiful image, and it's a very powerful way to start your book. What do you mean? I mean... What I make for you is going to vanish. It's not something you can take home. You can take a program home, but that's really not what it is. It's not on DVD. It's not on the cloud. It is from my mouth to your ear. It's live. Very few things are live today. Usually the negative things are live. But because I, I have spent so many years in the theater, so many hours and hours and hours communicating stories to my audience. It also means that every night is a different experience because the material might stay the same, but there's a different audience, a different energy. Uh, there's a, a different expectation. Uh, and so that's what that keeps me really excited because I get a huge inspiration from my audience. You don't get an inspiration from a camera. It takes everything and then spits you out. In your book, you open up very, very personally, with very, very uh, things that are so close to your heart, mm. members of your family, the relationships. How do you find the, the strength to put all of that on the page and then share it with the world? Or is it very easy for you? It's not easy, but it, it has been um, more possible... At my age, I'm 73, I'm not 45. I couldn't do it at 45. Because it's, it's only halfway, halfway. I mean, hopefully you survive. Um, but I've found, having done two memoirs already, in the, in the, one in 2002, one in 2005, um, which were very focused on my work and the politics, sexual politics and South African politics. This is the first time I really focus on my family. Uh, on the, 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 the early years, which I don't always think are very interesting for a reader. I, when I get an autobiography, I start on page 25, because from 1 to 24, okay, so you were born, so you went to school, so you are... But in this case, I really, I really focus on life beyond being a child, um, where I had to come to terms with a very strict father, where I fell in love with my greatest inspiration Mozart um, and there was music everywhere because my parents both pianists I say are because I still think of them as they are here um, and and so I was really brought up in this great I suppose this orgy of music this positive energy uh, of music uh, which is with me to this day I think it's been my greatest um, I think probably my best burglar alarm system because when anything frightens me, I go back to music, and it, and it sorts it out. And then, of course, my mother from Germany, my mother who left Berlin in 1937, right at the very last moment, and brought her piano with her, 
because her parents had already moved to Cape Town, which in itself is extraordinary how they sat around a table in Charlottenburg in Berlin uh, uh, deciding where to hide, where to go. Um, I only found out that my mother was Jewish after she died. We didn't, we never talked about it. She never mentioned it. Very peculiar. Very difficult to explain. The, the, the way that you do write about those early years in your childhood, you do show how foundations for the rest of your life were laid in, in certain aspects of your childhood, certain events, as you mentioned, certain family traditions like the music. And you do make that part of your life very much uh, part of the, 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 the patterns of the sweep of your full biography or your full life story. Mm. One of the things that you do mention is um, when you were young, you were thinking what you wanted to be when you grew up. And a few ideas came into your mind to be a train driver because of certain I love trains. trains, yes, yes. And then a Germany for all the wrong reasons, and then possibly a teacher as well, because of an inspirational teacher that you had in school. Yes, yes. Well, a steam train driver was logical. I mean, the, the locomotives, we used to wait for the rail, at the railway crossing on my, on my way to church with my dad. He was the organist in the Dutch Home Church. Um, then, of course, uh, Germany's, well, Germany's got free motor cars. Germany's were absolutely on pedestals, Germany's went straight to heaven. Uh, and I remember at the Sunday school, they said to us as, as, as little kids, you know, if we were good white Christian children, Afrikaans children, we'd go straight to heaven. And of course, all the good black Christian children would go straight to their heaven. And I, I to this day, just remember that strange feeling of love. Hey? Oh, and then I wanted to know, does the cat go to heaven? And then they said no. And I thought, I don't want to go either. Um, and teacher, of course, I had a great teacher at school who inspired me in so many ways. Um, but then I was hijacked in my second year at the university by drama. I was hijacked by a BA drama, and I, and I changed gears. And my father was furious, and my mother was fascinated. Uh, and she said, Why, what, you mean, do you want to be a teacher? And I said, no, 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 I want to be an actor. She said, can you act? I said, I don't know. She said, you better find out. And you can only do it yourself. So uh, that's where I found out. We are in conversation with South African legend Peter Dirk Ace. We're discussing his new book, The Echo of a Noise. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. It's that time of year again. The people are electric. The stores are packed. It's the time when the world comes together, keeps it together, and lives it together. This year's Shabbos project is one day away, and it truly promises to be the best one yet. Keep a lookout for your area's programs. The youth have taken over, and they've created a revolution. Let's get ready to make history. For more info and to find out what's going on at your shul, go to theshabbosproject.org. Let's keep it together. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Peter Dirk Ace, the actor, the larger-than-life creator of so many way larger-than-life characters who have become part of the fabric of South African society, part of, I suppose, the Jiminy Cricket of South African society, <laughs> uh, part of our, of our <laughs> conscience, holding up that mirror to ourselves. I'd like to go back to your family. There's mm. so much in the book about your relationships with your mother and with your father and with 
the lady we would call the maid. Yes, that was Sunny. Sunny, Sunny Abada, yes. She was a part of your family. Mm. And these relationships in many ways are the fertilizer and the you know of your of 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 so much of your life they 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 gave they give so much form to who you are your mother why did she come well her parents were in south africa already but how did they get here Uh, uh, this extraordinary thing my mother's fiance in berlin uh he was a professor of geology he wasn't jewish had sent my grandparents to cape town in 1934 Again, why Cape Town? You know, it's like going to the moon, but that was pretty far away from what was happening in, in Germany. Did you ever discuss with your mother why? Never. The fiancés never sent them there. No, never, never. There was no. You first of all, we as kids in, in our generation didn't ask questions. Um, I remember when I gave my mom a birthday present. Um, a big, big book called Unser Berlin in Bilder, our Berlin pictures, because she used to tell us about this magical place. I mean, it was just all just Disneyland. It was beautiful Berlin, and it was Weimar Republic, and it was music, and the people were happy, and they were singing songs. The reality was there was an inflation, a million percent inflation, uh, and there was violence, and there was everything that was terrible. She never spoke about that. And then I gave her this book for her birthday, and she opened it up with a huge smile to a double-page picture of Berlin in 1945. And turned away and changed the subject, and nobody said anything. So I really have, I suppose I have had a, a very extraordinary uh, experience of denial in, uh, in, my, in my life, my childhood. And through that, again, I used my fantasy. I created... In, uh, fictitious characters when I played my dinky toys in the garden and I lis- loved the radio and, and, and I listened to my soundtracks from mo- movies and, and then I discovered Sophia Loren and then that was a dream so I was a very sort of I suppose a very shy kid um, very very good a good Christian Calvinist Afrikaans boy with a strict father um, and a loving mother who worked both of them worked extremely hard so that my sister Tessa and I could have uncomplicated lives I only found that out years and years and years later and then there was Sunny in the kitchen who just kept us with our feet on the ground and had a wonderful sense of humor and a great discipline and uh, and just taught us to respect and uh, I thank her for that the book the title of the book is The Echo of a Noise yeah. but something that you've just mentioned just struck a thought in my mind that there's also a lot of echoes of silences as well. So, yes, not- you know the title perplexed me when I when I suddenly had the title. I very often start with titles before I have anything, and test them out. And I thought, what does this mean? The echo of a noise. Am I the echo of a noise of the past? Am I a has been? Yeah, very possible. Why not? Because I come from a different world, and I talk about it quite often. Um, or am, is the echo of a noise the noise that I'm making of a noise that is reinventing itself for the future? Is the history repeating itself? Apartheid might be dead, but separate developments are getting stronger every day. Um, or is that sound, is that noise the sound of laughter, where I got people to laugh at things that weren't funny? Because apartheid was never funny. 
but hypocrisy and and lies and and superiority and arrogance were hideously funny, and that's where my humor lay. You mentioned Sophia Loren. Yeah. What's the story in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell, it's I was 11 years old, and I found a picture of her in a magazine, and I cut it out and stuck it up on the wall next to my picture of Dr. Hendrik Verwurt. <laughs> and Dr. Verwurt fell off the wall the next day. And I think Sophia saved my life because he stayed off my wall forever, and she stayed on my wall forever, too. But Stand from the there, wall. you actually have a real relationship. Built through the years, I found her address in, in Rome when I was there, and I left a letter for her, and she wrote to me, and I wrote back to her, and we became pen friends. And then at the worst time of my life, when my mother was dead, and she was at the crematorium, um, and she'd committed suicide, and she'd left us, and we didn't understand why, and we didn't know what was going on. The only thing I could do to help me was to write a letter to this one person I had in Rome. And then she wrote back and she said, you've got to help your father and your sister. You can't cry now. You will cry one day, but not now. Now you must be brave. I love you, Sophia. And that changed my life. Those two words, be brave. I was. I took control of my family. I uh, looked after my father and my sister um, for a long, long time. And, and, and I think that was one of the small signposts that I talk about in the book, which changed my life. You know, which, which, which are, re- for example, the, when my mother used to drive us to the Astetford and my sister would play the piano and I would sing and my father always said, you must win, you must win, you must win, bring the medals back, yeah, yeah. And then, and then mom would say to us, um, when we got there, she said, enjoy yourself, really have a wonderful time. And remember, if you win, you get an ice cream and if you don't win, you get two ice creams. But what a great philosophy. She never said lose. It was if you don't win, you get two ice creams. So I've been very satisfied with two ice creams for quite quite some time. In the book, when you start writing about your 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 early uh, theatre career in South Africa, two names, two theatres come up: the Space in Cape Town and the Market Theatre in Joburg. Yeah, absolutely. The grounding of my life. Thanks to those two places, incredible background and and alphabet and the reality of survival against all the odds. Because, first of all, it was all illegal. Allowing black and white people to sit in the audience together was against the law. Uh, to have black and white actors on stage together was against the law. Uh, uh, focusing on forgotten places like Robben Island and banned terrorists like Nelson Mandela was against the law. Uh, being a homosexual was against the law. Uh, being naked on stage was against the law. Well, some of them were naked on stage. I was still just scared. Uh, and then, and then we just fought our battles, and that's where the censorship took over, uh, and where they banned my plays and uh, uh, forced me to find my weapon of mass distraction, which is humour. From from the, the space and then the market theatre, you went on to create. Oh, as you just, you say, you said you, you haven't been employed for the last so many years. No. <laughs> but in the state of unemployment, you've created some of the, the most immediately recognizable South African icons. We can't interview Peter Dirk Ace without mentioning Tani Evita. That's right. And she's in the boot of the car. <laughs> because I'm doing a cabaret on, on Friday. Um, yes, she was also the only there because I needed to find a way of saying the things I wasn't allowed to say in 1978 in a newspaper column in the Sunday Express. And then when I did my first one-man show, Adapt or Die, in 1981, she was in the... I did her as a character, which was also illegal for men to wear women's clothing. Uh, And she came at the right time. People enjoyed her, and I could use her 
to actually um, write letters to the police on her letterhead for them to lock Peter Dirk Ace up because he was a terrorist and a communist and confusing them with anarchy. And and again, if they smiled, that helped. I mean, I always want to see my 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 enemy sort of stop frowning and smiling because then you sort of break down. We in conversation with Peter Dirk Ace. The book that has just been released is called The Echo of a Noise, a memoir of then and now. It's published by Tafelberg. We'll be back with more questions, more conversation, more answers straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Whiskey and Spirits Live, supported by the Gauteng Tourism, is on at the Santon Convention Center from the 31st of October to the 2nd of November 2018, when almost 300 of the world's finest whiskies are brought under one roof. It's time for the world's largest whiskey festival. Whether you're a a newcomer or an enthusiast, discover premium spirits that include whiskey, gin, rum, tequila, vodka, and more. Meet the experts and find exciting ways to enjoy your favorite drink. Don't miss Whiskey and Spirits Live from the 31st of October to the 2nd of November at the Santon Convention Center. Tickets available at ticketpros.co.za. Whiskey Live supports responsible drinking. No under-18s allowed. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have in the studio South African legend Peter Dirk Ace. The book is The Echo of a Noise, a memoir of then and now, published by Tafelbach. It's available in the shops. Peter is on a road trip around the country to promote his book and to promote brand Peter Dirk Ace. What are your thoughts about where South Africa is now? I am very concerned about the confusion and the fear and the silence. Um, And government and politicians are using the weapon of fear to shut people up. Uh, Racism is becoming uh, a means to an end. Mainly the word, again, it ends a conversation. When you have a, a criticism, somebody said you can't say that you're a racist and people stop talking. And my answer to that is when I say to them, listen, till I was 50 years old, it was politically correct to be a racist. Apartheid was politically correct. So I will not be politically correct today. And I will, I will celebrate my freedom of expression in as many ways as I can within the structure of good taste. I mean, taste is a very, I mean, you know, to insult somebody and to demean them is easy and completely pointless. Um, and so, uh, I, I would have, Back in, in, in the old days, obviously focusing on the National Party and their policies, but I would also focus on white liberalism. Um, and, of course, my wonderful, legendary Jewish character, Noel, Noel Fine, whom I just adored, and she was a very important aspect of my, my agenda because she was a white liberal. And I think people must remember uh, how important white liberals were for us in those days mainly Jewish people who knew exactly what they were talking about, having escaped a previous appalling Holocaust, um, this wonderful sense of humor that Jewish people have that I have annexed to myself now that I'm also a Jew. Um, and then, of course, this glorious character, this lovely Noel. I remember the one line, I, and I still repeat this very often when people remind me, there are two things I can't stand about South Africa, apartheid and the blacks. <laughs> and she was great. So 
you know, it was it was always for me characters. I hid behind many of them because I was very frightened of my own opinion. Uh, was I allowed to have an opinion? But Evita could say things because she was a, a, a nationalist and she was not my fan. Um, and Noel said so. It was equal opportunity satire. I had a, I didn't just take sides. I, I mixed and matched wherever I could. And how are you using humour today to? Point, poke the government. Well, humor again is something I, I, I respect, um, against fear and against, uh, bad news. Uh, comedy I think is great as, as long as we can keep telling wonderful jokes about each other. That's healthy, but that's also becoming a problem. Um, I have to reinvent myself. I mean, that's, it's good. I mean, I can't just do characters because people say you can't do black characters, you can't do Jacob Zuma um, because you're white and it's racist and all that. And I think, okay, if that's if that's the fence around the character, then let me find another way of finding a, a, a gate. So in my new show, I do P.W. Boerter because, I mean, I have to. You know, everybody says you've got to do your Britain Boerter. And then I say, well, you know, it's been seen as politically incorrect for me to do Jacob Zuma, but we can't not have Jacob Zuma. So P.W. Boerter is going to do his impersonation of Jacob Zuma. Much more interesting and much more telling because they both are South African presidents who were forced to resign uh, for different reasons, but important reasons. You often say that, um, if I get the quote correct, um, the future certain, the his, history is... Yes, 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 yes. Uh, the, the history still has to be formed because South Africa is always in such a state of flux. Yes, it's, it's, it, well, it's true. It's, um, history does repeat itself, but in different ways. And if I can catch the, the, the humor in, in the repetition, which I will always find through... Zapira's cartoons. I still feel he is one of my greatest mentors and inspirations and courage uh, on many levels, on his own background, uh, on his country, on his color, on his culture. I mean, marvelous work and important work and uh, and also very, very economical work because just with, with a drawing he can say so many things that I need pages to say. Um, but I enjoy the theatricality of the characters. I mean, I want you to give me your time and come and see me. And there's a lot of time. You've got to give me four hours. You've got to set your burglar alarm. You've got to feed your Rottweilers. You've got to reverse your four by four out of the driver, hoping that the burglars don't run in when you drive out. You've got to survive in the Johannesburg traffic and become a racist within 10 seconds when a taxi drives into you. Then you get to the theater. You, 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 you buy your ticket. You park your car. You kiss your car goodbye. You know, all the things you've got to do to come to me. So what do I give you in return? I can't bore you. I can't irritate you with, with old news. Um, I can offend you, but not all the time because it's too exhausting. And by offending you, I rattle your cage where you suddenly think, but I don't think like that. Why do he, the, I don't, I don't want to uh, demean you and insult you because they, oh, there is power on the stage to do that to the audience. Uh, and so I want to, I want to give you an experience of a lifetime. I want you to leave my performance saying, wow. I am proud to be a South African, and I'm fed up with all this negative nonsense, and let's find out where the mistakes are being made, and let's point a finger at them. But let's also find out who's good at the job of politics. We've got some very good politicians in South Africa, and and when we focus on them and actually support them, really, truly, it'll help us as well. At the moment, we're just looking at the negative, and that makes us sick. 
if you could have the power to touch a few people on the head and change their minds or put other politicians in positions where they could have the the scope to change things in South Africa. Basically, if you could have a dream come true, what would you like to do to South Africa to, to turn the negativity around and build the country up? So we can regain that 1994 spirit of well, reconciliation. Well, you know, we won't regain that 94 spirit. We won't ever have a, an, a third chance to make our dreams come true. We got away with apartheid. I mean, there was no Nuremberg trial. None of us was hung like Saddam Hussein for crimes against humanity. And the one thing I remind my audience constantly is we are celebrating our freedom of speech by talking about the things that are going wrong. Those things can be set right. I've just listened to Tito Mbaweni on the radio with his first uh, budget, and he came out very strongly against against the, 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 the culture of corruption and state capture. Where did that word come from? I mean... It used to be referring to one department somewhere. Now it refers to a whole government. So we've got a huge amount of work to do. But the most important work is our children and grandchildren and our homes and our neighbors and our friends and our communities. And and, and when people are in trouble, like in Kailicha, a terrible fire destroyed a thousand people's homes. Go there tomorrow. Not in, not in a, B, a, a, a DA uh, uh, T-shirt to get votes, but go there because you care. Um there's no cure for many, many viruses, but care is halfway the cure. The the book's out, and you're promoting the book. You said you're doing a, a review this uh, a re- this f- this Friday in Joburg. What else is Peter Dirk Ace doing? We, is there going to be another show at the market that can catch you? What is what else is up your sleeve? Well, I've got the new show I'm doing uh, is called When in Doubt Say Darling, and I'm doing it in Natal. Uh, Durban and Peter Maritzburg in two weeks' time, and then I've got three weeks in Cape Town, and I've got a big season at my theatre in Darling at Vita Seperon. So if anybody's coming down in, in December, check us out on the website evita.co.za. Uh, and then I have got, uh, I'm taking the book to London to the Jewish Book f- f- a Week. We're doing a, a launch there in March. Uh, and I have a new show I'm working on for next year. But the most interesting thing I'm doing every week, every Sunday morning, I do an episode of Evita's Free Speech, which goes out on YouTube on a Sunday and on Daily Maverick on a Monday. And we're now on episode 166, so we've been doing it for three years. And that's lovely. That's Evita on the news of the moment, on the news of the day, her opinion, and maybe answering many questions but leaving a smile on your face at the same time. Last question. This is a book show. What... Do you read when you have some time to pick up a book and read? I read whenever I can. I love reading. I have the magazines because obviously that's a political read. But I've just finished reading uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. Oh, it's beautiful. It is the most glorious friendship I have made with that book and that character, those characters. And the, and the, and the detail and the... It was just, I was, I was heartbroken when I, when the book was over. Um, and, I, and I love biographies and autobiographies. Not that I believe most of them because they're all great lies, but <laughs> still fascinating. Uh, so, so I've always got, I read three books at the same time and I don't, you know, sometimes, and move around. Uh, so book, it was re- reading is, is a great, a great thrill. I've got a very important thing in my life, a very strong reading light. So that once I can read properly, then I've got my glasses, but you can't, you can't read in the dark. It's very hard. So that's very important. Get good reading light and you'll find you'll read even more. 
We've just finished talking to South African legend Peter Dirk Ace. He's promoting his latest book, The Echo of a Noise, a memoir of then and now. It's published by Tafelberg. It's been an absolute privilege and such a pleasure to have you in the studio, your precious time sharing with us here at High FM and all the listeners across Johannesburg. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've loved it. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And this is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just finished our interview with Peter Dirk Ace. Now we're going to move on to a number of other books that are available. First one we're going to look at is a book called Love is Blind. It's by William Boyd and it's published by Viking. William Boyd's career consists of an endless flow of stories in the great realist tradition with strong plots, well-rounded characters, and written in a language that anyone can understand. Among the literary great beasts who emerged in the 1980s, and you all know who I mean, Ian McEwan, Salman Rushdie, among many others, William Boyd remains perhaps the most difficult to categorize. The early novels, A Good Man in Africa in 1981 and An Ice Cream War in 1982, are distinctly Graham Greenish. Nat Tate, an American artist, published in 1998, was famously a novel masquerading as a biography. And in 2013, William Boyd published Solo, a James Bond novel that out-Flemminged Ian Fleming. There have been plenty of other novels, collections of short stories, film scripts, essays, reviews, and an autobiography. The essential shape and nature of Boydism, if it might be described as such, is fluid. The actual artifacts, as it were, are unimportant. His career consists of an endless flow of stories in the great realist tradition, with strong plots, well-rounded characters, and written in a language that is accessible to everyone. He's one of those rare writers you might read, your mum might read, your grandmother might read, your brother, with whom you have nothing else in common because he spends most of his time on his games console and trading in Bitcoin or watching the History Channel, might also read. And you can all share your enthusiasms. Boyd's work is proof of that old Jane Austen definition of the novel in Northanger Abbey as a work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, the liveliest effusions of wit and humour are conveyed to the world. As with much of his work, Boyd's new novel, Love is Blind, tells the story of an energetic and sweet-natured outsider attempting to make his way in life. The obvious comparison would be with Dickens, but Boyd's tenor and tone is all Chekhov. In 1894, Brodie Moncure a talented musician and piano tuner, leaves Scotland to work in Paris, where he becomes drawn into the circle of a famous Irish pianist, John Kilbarren, a vile, bullying egotist, who, when he's not wowing the crowds with his music, is self-medicating with drink and drugs. When Brady begins a secret affair with Kilbarren's lover, the Russian soprano Lika Bloom, Melodrama inevitably ensues, with Brody and Lika eventually finding themselves travelling across Europe, pursued by Malachi Kilbaron, John's vengeful brother. The book begins and continues at a cracking pace, uh, or perhaps a cinematic stride, with scenes, scenarios, set pieces and minor characters aplenty, all of which and all of whom might easily detain another writer for an entire book. 
They're interesting characters, lots of excitement, and Brody's improbable final leap takes him to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, where he ends up working for an eccentric Margaret Mead-like anthropologist who is studying the sexual lives of the locals. Paris, Edinburgh, Nice, Bayeritz, St. Petersburg, Trieste, all these places are in between. The places and the details are all tourist brochure magnificent and lush, so much so that one occasionally wonders why there is so much effort being expended on, say, the description of a of some hotel room. By the end of the book, one feels rather than what that one might almost become a piano tuner, having read so much about piano tuning. A quote from the book. The piano was perfectly tuned. He had tuned it himself when it had emerged pristine from the factory two weeks ago. He tuned F, a modicum on the sharp side, then knocked it in, back into tune, with a few brisk taps of the key on the key. He supported a hammerhead and kneaded up the felt a little with his three-pronged voicing tool and repositioned and returned it to its position. But every detail counts, with Boyd brilliantly exploiting and adhering to the relentless logic of the Chekhovian rifle on the wall, of all of the objects, all of the places, all of the people, ultimately serve the story. William Boyd makes it look so easy. He's a pro. That is the book, Love, Love, Love is Blind by William Boyd. It's published by Viking, and it is available right now. The next book we're going to, uh, non-fiction, is called Agent Jack. It's by Robert Hutton, and it's the true story of MR5's secret Nazi hunter. June 1940, Britain is Europe's final bastion of freedom and Hitler's next target. But not all fear a Nazi invasion. In factories, offices, and suburban homes are men and women determined to do all they can to hasten it. Throughout the Second World War, Britain's frontline defense against the enemy within was a former bank clerk named Eric Roberts. Codenamed Jack King, he posed as a Gestapo agent to infiltrate and control hundreds of British Nazi sympathizers. In a narrative that grips like a thriller, Robert Hutton draws on newly declassified documents to tell the fascinating true story of Operation Fifth Column, kept so secret. It was emitted from MR5 reports to Winston Churchill. Now, just to give you a sense of how secret it was and how undercover this entire operation was, this is at the very beginning of the book. Note to the reader, this is a true story. It has never been told in full. The handful of people who knew it were sworn to secrecy. Such oaths are occasionally broken, but unlike some of British, inte- British intelligence's other Second World War operations, this was one no one wanted to boast about. Since 1945, Britain has told itself a story about the war. In this narrative, not only did the country stand alone against the military forces of fascism, but it was also uniquely resistant to the ideology itself. While other nations succumbed to such ideas or collaborated with invaders, Britain stood firm. That strength of character saved not just the UK, but all of Europe. But MR5 knew a different story. By the end of the war, it had identified hundreds of apparently loyal British men and women who longed for a Nazi conquest. A few had gone further, risking their lives to help Hitler. Even more worryingly, 
Some of these traitors lived in a single ordinary London suburb and had, been, and had been identified by a single agent. Underneath the spirit of the Blitz, he had uncovered another set of loyalties. Much of what that agent found has been destroyed in the decades since. But among the records that have survived are more than 600 pages of transcripts and of conversations made between 1942 and 1944, in which British citizens discuss how best to betray their country to Germany, the tale of what they said, and how they came to be saying it, is one that caused deep unease among the few who knew it. But it is time for those voices to be heard, and they are heard loud and clear in the book Agent Jack, The True Story of MR5 Secret Nazi Hunter by Robert Hutton, Unlike most books that talk about Nazi hunters, this one's not talking about hunting Nazis after the war. It's about hunting Nazi sympathizers in England, in Britain, while Britain was fighting the war. We'll be back with a few more novels straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. In our last stretch, we're looking at a few novels. Looking at a novel now called Whistle in the Dark by Emma Healy. A desperate mother seeks to understand why her teenage daughter briefly disappeared in Healy's follow-up to her debut novel. Her debut novel is was Elizabeth is Missing, and that novel won the Costa Debut Award. In a world of ever more convoluted plot, twist, plot twists, here's a true novelty. A mystery novel where the mystery is set up on the first page and then straightforwardly solved at the end. Emma Healy is the young novelist whose debut, Elizabeth is Missing, about an elderly woman with dementia, which, as I said earlier, won the Costa First Novel Award in 2014. The achievement of this follow-up lies in in its finely drawn mother-daughter pairing and sharp take on the nitty-gritty of contemporary familial relationships. The novel is written in the third person, but we see everything from the point of view of the desperately anxious Jen, who never seemed to get the reaction she expected from other people. It was as though they didn't think she was the, she was the person she thought she was. Jen is trying not to put a foot wrong, but detonates bombs wherever she goes. Lana is her intensely strong-willed and utterly miserable daughter, prone to self-harm, who at the beginning of the novel has disappeared for four days and been found again. She's the scariest type of adolescent, scathing, rude, demanding, but underneath it all very sad and frightened. Here's a quote. I look hideous without the bandana, said Lana. I'm sure it isn't that bad. You're disregarding my feelings again, Mum. We talked about this with Dr. Greenbaum. Most of the book details Jen's attempts to coax her daughter her teenage daughter, into opening up and revealing what has happened during her four-day disappearance. The desperate love of a parent for a child they cannot know is wonderfully true to life. And despite the rather bleak setup, there are lots of very funny moments, such as self-consciously arty artists' group. There is also a glorious scene in a religious bookshop where Jen is simultaneously disappointed and reassured to find that they sell gluten-free communion wafers. And the ending, in which Jen retraces her daughter's actual footsteps, feels both cathartic and satisfying, more so than any high-concept shock twist could have been. This is the book, 
Whistle in the Dark by Emma Healy. It is available and it's published by Viking as well. The next book we're going to look at is a book called Our Our Homesick Songs and it's by Emma Hooper. We're in Newfoundland in Canada, the 1990s. The Atlantic has emptied of cod and fishing out ports of, and the fishing out ports of the rugged island are emptying of fishing families at a fast pace. In the small village of Big Running, Martha and Aidan Connor, along with their children, Cora and Finn, are among the few remaining residents holding out hope the fish will return. As they are given six months to relocate before the government cuts off services, the Connors, like so many New Finlanders, look west to the Alberta oil patch for their salvation. The parents take turns one month at home, one month in Alberta, while the other stays with the children so they can put food on the table. That recent heartbreaking period in New Finland's history is the backdrop to Emma Hooper's new novel, Our Homesick Songs. This second novel from the author, her first one was The Quirky Etta and Otter and Russell and James. This novel is a lovely homage to New Finland's culture, a story about storytelling, storytellers, told with a beguiling simplicity. Lovely and lyrical, it weaves together multi-generational tales, but the main narrative unfolds largely through the eyes of 11-year-old Finn. The ode, this book is an ode to the folklore of the isle of, 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 of this area of Canada, and Hooper's brain brims with mermaids and music and memory, as any good New Finland story must, and there's no shortage of eccentric characters. Rooted as it is in the mystical tales of this land, our homesick songs feels like a come-away version of the island, celebrating its charm but not necessarily steeped in the salty brine of the island's culture. And where our homesick song is most authentic is in a storyline all too common to any culture or place, and this is what makes it universal. The struggle of Martha and Aidan, that's the parents, to keep their fairy tale love alive, through the ups and downs of real life. So that's the book show for today, People of the Book, on 101.9 High FM, our interview with Peter Dirk Ace, and then the books that we reviewed, Agent Jack by Robert Hutton, Whistle in the Dark by Emma Healy, Emma Hooper's Our Homesick Songs, and William Boyd's Love is Blind. Until next week, continue reading, and good Shabbos.